In her book that is entitled Amazing Grace, A Vocabulary of Faith, the wonderful poet and essayist Kathleen Norris has written about the time that she was faced with preaching on the text that is our New Testament lesson today, the 13th chapter of the Gospel according to Mark. She writes this, I would not have chosen to preach on this text. However, it seems that the words chose me. I can identify with Kathleen Norris. <laughs> when I saw that the lectionary had served up Mark 13 as the gospel lesson for this day, the November the 14th, I first thought I would rather not preach on this text. And why is that? Why do Kathleen Norris and I share this, this feeling? It's because Mark 13 is apocalyptic literature. And literature that falls into this genre can be pretty scary stuff. It can be literature that invokes a kind of a boogeyman god. And so as I anticipated preaching on the text today, I, made, I had a hunch that perhaps there would be some who were here in the sanctuary or some who are worshiping with us from home via live stream who perhaps have been impacted by some of the scary images of God and that you've made a journey you have worked through that to move into more loving and compassionate images of God. And so it would be difficult. And so before I read the passage, it seems right that I talk just a little bit about what apocalyptic literature, biblically speaking, is and is not. Mark 13 and all biblical apocalyptic literature, which would include the entire book of Revelation, it is not a detailed description of future events. It is not an invitation to escape from, to withdraw from the events that are going on in the world. Rather, what's happening when an author writes in this manner is that the author is giving readers a wake-up call. And it is a call to sharpen one's sense of the presence and the purposes of God in human life. And so with that in mind then, let us listen for God's word to us as it comes from the 13th chapter of the gospel according to Mark, verses 1 through 13. As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher. What large buildings there are. What large stones there are. And Jesus answered him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked Jesus privately, Tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? 
Then Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he. They will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. As for yourselves, beware. For they will hand you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them. And the good news must first be proclaimed to all the nations. When they bring you to trial and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you at that time. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death. A father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The title of today's sermon is A Gracious Apocalyptic Word. A Gracious Apocalyptic Word. When it comes to reading the gospel according to Mark, and particularly the 13th chapter of Mark, it is not too much a stretch, I think, to say that Mark was the George Will of his day. And by that, I mean that when Mark wrote his gospel, he was not simply reporting objectively the facts of what happened mm, about 30 years prior to the time that he was writing, but rather he's offering political commentary of his own day. When Mark writes about how Jesus quashed the oohs and the ahs of those disciples, country bumpkins come to town as they look around at those large stones and those great buildings, and he says to them that one day that will come when those great buildings will be nothing but a pile of rubble. What Mark is doing is reading the signs of his own time. Somewhere probably around the, between the year 60 and the year 70 of the Common Era. There are even some scholars who believe that when Mark wrote this passage, that it was actually after the temple had been destroyed in the year 70. And so he is looking at the devastation that's already there 
as the Roman troops under the command of the future Emperor Titus had, had come into Jerusalem and destroyed the entire city, including the temple. And so he writes these words of encouragement as he says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. He's, he's talking directly to people who are already being hauled up in front of the governors and the kings and, and taken on, put on trial because they refuse to dilute their faith in Jesus Christ by kneeling and worshiping the emperor. And so Mark offers this political commentary from the point of view of faith, and he points out how one is to remain faithful even in the midst of extreme political and religious upheaval. And that is certainly one way to read this text. It's also a faithful way to read it and apply it to circumstances in our own day. Because we, like the people of Mark's day, need to be reminded from time to time of the fragility of our human institutions. You know, the temple did not last forever. The city of Jerusalem did not last forever. The Roman Empire did not last forever. The United States of America will not last forever. The Presbyterian Church will not last forever. Now these are human institutions and they serve an a useful purpose for a time, God's own purpose for a time. Remember, Jesus himself worshiped gladly in the temple. You will recall how when his parents were very frantic and could not find him, that wonderful story that Luke tells in his gospel, when Jesus was 12 years old and they couldn't find him, where was he found? In the temple. Worshiping there and listening to the wisdom of the elders, the teachers, the priests, the rabbis. So our institutions serve a useful purpose for a time, but they are not eternal. And so we are reminded that we cannot put our ultimate loyalty, our ultimate truth, truth trust in them. And as that happens, they, we are told and we are encouraged to loosen our grasp on those holes that they have on us and to back away perhaps from the way that we hold on to them and to strengthen our hold on that which is eternal. That is the unconditional love the good and gracious purposes of our God who is known to us in Jesus Christ. So one way, one faithful way to read a passage like this is to hear it as speaking to our own current day political, religious 
social, cultural upheavals. I believe it's also possible to read it more closely and more personally, to read it as an encouragement to view the sacredness of our own lives and the holiness of our day-to-day -day interactions with God and with our neighbors. In John Updike's novel, In the Beauty of the Lilies, he writes in his magnificent prose of one of his young characters, a young girl whose name is Essie. And she's been to the movies that afternoon and she emerges out of the dark confines of the theater into the light of the day. Updike describes the scene this way. Emerging from the Roxy, Saturday had kept on being Saturday. It was such a long day that she couldn't see how people could ever get old. The future was so far away. That's the way that most of us, if not all of us, view time. Sometimes. Occasionally, it actually corresponds to our actual chronological age, but not all, always. And certainly, it did not for me this past week. Last Wednesday, I stood in the light of a sun-dappled morning in the cemetery of the old, old Pin Branch Church Cemetery in North South Carolina. North, the Pin Branch Church there has not held services for many, many years. Their last full-time pastor left in 1919. The church exists basically to maintain the cemetery. And I was there for the graveside funeral of my 99-year-old cousin, Nina McGregor Brown. Now, one of the blessings of my own parents' latter years and Nina's latter years was that they, when they moved to the Presbyterian retirement community in Columbia, they lived in adjoining cottages. And so the friendship and the kinship that they had had for many, many, many years had the opportunities to deepen in those latter years of their lives. They were able to have lunch together every single day in the dining room. And then when my mother came to live in assisted living at another Presbyterian retirement community, the village at Somerville, Nina inherited my parents' golf cart. And in her mid-90s, she learned to tool around in the golf cart, and that enabled her to stay in her cottage even longer because she could uh, make her way back and forth from the cottage to the dining room. 
And it was only yesterday when I was going over my sermon and polishing it up a little bit that I realized something. Um, Nina actually had been a Gamecock cheerleader. And my parents are definitely not Gamecock fans, or were not Gamecock fans. And um, never in all that time that she was driving the golf cart did she ever remove that great big tiger paw uh, decal that was on the front of the golf cart. Well, as I stood in that cemetery yesterday, and as I looked over that vista of hundreds of granite headstones, and as I listened to the squirreling melody of the bagpipes, the tunes from the highlands, from whence our McGregor ancestors came to this land, as I listened as Fran Bragan, the chaplain from the Columbia community, read words from Ecclesiastes, for everything there is a season, a time to be born and a time to die. And as I pondered the rich and full lives, not only of Nina, but of my own parents, my father who died six years ago and my mother who died two months ago. Then, you know, I was struck with how brief our time on earth is. And the future did not seem far away. In the words of Mark 13, seemed to choose me and to come to me not as an angry fear-inducing screed but as God's gracious word God's gracious word that invites us to see all of our lives Every single moment that we spend at work, at school, at leisure, in our volunteer responsibility, in every relationship we have, amid not only our joys, but also amid our fears, and our losses, and our griefs, and our most formidable challenges in this life, and to view them all as a part of a holy drama, a drama that God is writing with our lives, so that we're reminded to lean in to God's providence and God's grace that is eternal. Perhaps you've heard the story of an eclipse that happened 
during our nation's colonial days. And as the skies darkened, the legislators who were gathered uh, on that day became panicked. And one of them said, Mr. Speaker, I move that we adjourn. And to that, one of those who was there stood and said, I object, Mr. Speaker. If the world is going, not going to end today, then, and we are found to be adjourned, then we will be thought to be fools. However, however, if the world does end today, then I choose to be doing my duty. Mr. Speaker, I ask that candles be brought. And so it would seem that the words of Mark 13 do choose us wherever we might be. And they offer us a gracious word. And they encourage us to light the candles of our lives against the darkness. And to hold fast to that which endures. God's presence. God's purposes. God's promises for the world. Amen.